This is an ABC podcast. Hello, welcome to PM. I'm Samantha Donovan, coming to you from the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation in Melbourne. Tonight, former Minister Stuart Robert insists he had to defend robo-debt in the media due to Cabinet solidarity, at the same time knowing the scheme could be unlawful. Also, repeat young offenders blamed for increasing crime across regional Queensland. How can the problem be fixed and what do residents do in the meantime? We've got elderly that used to walk every day. They won't leave their homes because they're worried their house is going to get broken into or they're going to get attacked. I've lived here my whole life and have never ever experienced anything like this. And students causing concern, a chief behaviour advisor appointed for New South Wales schools. A lot of children have become quite reclusive, quite anxious, and so social interactions in the classroom can be, can be quite challenging. There's been a loss of learning stamina for a lot of, a lot of students. First tonight, the former Human Services Minister Stuart Robert has accused senior public servants in his department of keeping him in the dark about important legal advice on the robo-debt scheme. Stuart Robert told the Robo-Debt Royal Commission he would have acted immediately to abolish the debt recovery scheme had the advice been brought to his attention earlier. He says he continued to publicly defend robo-debt in Parliament and in the media, even though he had personal misgivings about its lawfulness. Rachel Mealy reports. Stuart Robert took over as Human Services Minister in May 2019. Um, Mr Robert, could you please tell the Commission your full name? Uh, Stuart Roland Robert. When he became the Minister, robo-debt had been in operation nearly three years and the case against it was mounting. Family after family had come forward saying their loved ones had died by suicide after receiving debt notices, and court cases challenging the scheme's validity were multiplying. In March of that year, his department had asked the Australian government solicitor for advice about one of the cases. The advice raised serious questions about the robo-debt scheme and advised the department to get the Solicitor-General involved. Stuart Roberts says he was kept in the dark about that advice, which he refers to as coming from the AGS. My department had an AGS brief and they've now had it for 27th of March. Is that the date, sir? Yes. They've now had it for April, May, June. They've now had it for almost 100 days and have not informed me in writing in any way, shape or form. Stuart Roberts says he asked senior public servants in the department to give him a full briefing on the robo-debt scheme in early July. But he says at that meeting he still wasn't shown the Australian government solicitor's advice. I do not recall this being briefed to me. I don't recall my department saying on the 4th of July we have an AGS advice because if we did, my actions would have been consistent with what I did on the 7th of November when the SG advice arrived. My department had had it for seven or eight weeks. I had it for two hours before I walked straight into the Prime Minister's office unannounced, put it down and said, we need to stop this. 
Earlier this week, the former secretary of his department told the Royal Commission that when she did raise that advice with Stuart Robert, he was dismissive of it. She claims he said that legal advice was just advice. And she claims that when she later told the minister he should apologise over the robo-debt scheme, he told her they wouldn't do that and would instead double down. Stuart Robert rejects her evidence. The idea that I've come out of the Prime Minister's office who's agreed with the Solicitor General's view, agreed to an urgent ERC the next, the next week, that I would then ignore those two and say we're going to double down on the same project, doesn't make any sense at all. Commissioner Catherine Holmes asked Stuart Robert how the scheme had been allowed to continue for so long. But the government somehow has allowed this program to run in full flight since September 2016 on such flimsy premises. Is there anything you want to say about that? Uh, yes, ma'am. The premises are flimsy and they should have been questioned. Advice should have been provided. But do you take any responsibility for what the government of which you were part did? Oh, absolutely, Commissioner. As a senior member of the government, I take absolute responsibility with, as part of Cabinet Solidarity for this. Uh, but I also take responsibility for being the minister that called it out to say we've got to get advice and stop it. The former minister says in late 2019, as he was holding misgivings about the scheme in private, he made false statements about robo-debt in media interviews because that's how the Westminster system works. In every interview, government ministers are expected to show confidence in the agenda of the government. There is no other way that the Westminster system operates. Cabinet ministers can't go out and defend some parts of a government's program and be wishy-washy on others. That's just not how I a government can operate, sir, respectfully. Former Minister Stuart Robert ending that report from Rachel Mealy. Well, for some analysis of Stuart Robert's evidence at the Robo-Debt Royal Commission today, I spoke with Rosalind Dixon, a Professor of Law at the University of New South Wales. Professor Dixon, what do you make of Stuart Roberts' evidence to the Commission that, as a Cabinet Minister, he's expected to show confidence in the government policies, even if he has doubts? He says there's no other way the Westminster system operates. I think he's got largely a good point, but with one uh, important caveat. So I do think our system functions only when we have parties that can command, if you like, the confidence of the House and that then the person who is the leader of that party is the Prime Minister. You can't have parliamentary government with a house full of independence. You have to have an ability to maintain confidence and supply. And I think in that broad sense, he's right that there are norms of, if you like, party discipline that underpin our system and people are allowed to deviate only um, because there's a conscience vote or because their individual conscience suggests that the actions of the government are so bad and, and reprehensible that they have to depart and vote their own conscious, conscience regardless. And if you remember, that's what Bridget Archer did uh, in the Morrison government. There have been other examples, but it's a pretty high threshold uh, before that could be reached. When Mr Roberts said, as a dutiful Cabinet Minister, that's what we do, the Commissioner Catherine Holmes asked him, well, does that mean misrepresenting things to the Australian public? So what is a Minister's responsibility? Toe the party line or always be honest with the public? Well, I think honesty is a paramount value. And if a Member of Parliament misleads Parliament, that's a serious form of misconduct that should lead them to resign. So they should not mislead Parliament as to facts. 
And it's critically important that when someone speaks in Parliament, they enjoy a very strong form of privilege against suit and that we depend on them to exercise that office responsibly, and that means honestly. So misrepresenting facts is a resignable offence. But if you like, suggesting that you support the government when you may have private reservations is a necessary trade-off in a collective system of party-based discipline and government. And so I think it depends critically on whether Mr Roberts misrepresented facts or whether he misrepresented his enthusiasm for the policy. Speaking to the media, is that different to speaking in Parliament in terms of the, the duty that's owed in terms of honesty? I think speaking to the media in general, the same norms apply, which is honesty on facts and an and understanding that you shouldn't, um, you know, lie about your own views, but you, it is acceptable to adopt a party position, even one that you're not personally enthusiastic about. So, yes, looking at the situation Stuart Robert was in and he was being grilled about today at the Royal Commission, he was doing a TV interview where he says he has concerns, personal concerns about the robo-debt scheme, but he's waiting for the, the legal advice on it. So is it fair enough, as he argues, for him to back the government scheme until he's got that actual advice that it is illegal? I think so. And he did express his own personal concerns, which is, I think, what he should have done. Um, And I think that, you know, it's very easy for us because most of us think that that was a really reprehensible policy that should have been stopped before it caused all the suffering that it did to look back and say, why didn't he act? And I think one does have to take the view that it's a collective responsibility and the entirety of the government is to blame for it. If he's the responsible minister, he has a greater duty to investigate uh, the legality and the facts. And I think one could criticise him for not more proactively seeking that advice earlier uh, rather than backing it until it was abandoned by the government. Rosalind Dixon, a professor of law at the University of New South Wales. This is PM. I'm Samantha Donovan. You can hear all our programs live or later on the ABC Listen app. Ahead, China leads the world in fields like AI, robotics and quantum technology. What does it mean for the decades to come? China is publishing approximately 65% of the world's top 10% research within a technology area. It's striking. It's really profound. Parts of the country are struggling with the youth crime wave. And in Queensland, there's fierce debate about whether tougher bail laws and extra policing will stem the problem. A parliamentary committee has been hearing from regional and metropolitan Queensland communities this week about the scale of the problem and whether reforms proposed by the government will reduce crime. But experts say many of the evidence-backed solutions to the crisis are being ignored. Gavin Coote has more. It's known as a tropical paradise, but many locals in Cairns are at wit's end about a stubborn crime wave afflicting the far north Queensland city. I've lived here my whole life and have never, ever experienced anything like this. Perry Conti is just one of hundreds of Cairns locals whose vehicles have been stolen in the last year. The owner of a local car rental business has been agitating for more action to fix the problem of youth crime. We've had people broken into nine times. It's just become a nightmare. You know, people are locked in their homes or they sleep with 
you know, something to protect themselves. It's just escalating, getting worse and worse and worse. It's not just Cairns dealing with a sustained wave of youth crime. In Townsville, nearly 1,000 juvenile offenders were arrested for property crimes last year. While 900 kilometres west in Mount Isa, local MP Rob Catter says the issue of youth crime is out of control. It's definitely the worst I've ever seen it. When I first got into politics over 10 years ago, I would have had one or two complaints come into my office a year about crime and youth crime, and I would have easily one or two a week come into my office now. And not just the frequency of crime, but the violence and intensity of it, which is not properly captured in the data. How would you describe the community feeling? Is it frustration or is it more anxiety? Yeah, it's it's, um, certainly a lot of anger to the point where you hear murmurs around town of groups getting together to take matters in their own hands. And, And I've now had two people I know well who have faced several years in prison for reacting to, you know, an incidence of crime, which is really difficult because when you're really trying to solve the underlying social issues that are generating this crime, it makes it pretty hard to pull people along with you on that journey when um, they're getting their cars stolen every night or their kids kids beaten up walking home from town. So it's, it does make it difficult as a politician. So how bad is the extent of youth crime, if indeed it is on the rise? Griffith University criminology emeritus professor Ross Hommel says there are two clear trends playing out. And when we look at youth crime in particular, that's been going down, down, down for about 15 or 20 years. It just varies a little from state to state. But a minority of approximately 10% of offenders are what we call early onset serious repeat offenders. They start at as young as age 10 or 11. Many of these, of course, are sadly uh, First Nations children. Any community has a right to feel very upset, very aggrieved. The fact that there is a petition in Queensland with 150,000 signatures calling for something to be done by the government, I don't blame these people. I think that their diagnosis is correct at the moment, but their solution, their remedy is uh, misguided. That solution involves tougher penalties including a Queensland government proposal to make breach of bail an offence for young people and expand a GPS tracking trial. The government's plan has gone under the microscope this week with a series of parliamentary hearings in Brisbane, Cairns and Townsville. At today's hearing in Townsville, Mayor Jenny Hill was among a number of speakers who backed the plan. Fundamentally, yes, we support this. It's a good starting point. Another supporter is Sarah Orton, who helped set up a victims' advocacy group in the city of Toowoomba, west of Brisbane, two months ago. I do see that the Strengthening Community Safety Bill 2023 is definitely a welcome achievement by the Premier, having listened to the community and providing non-partisan solutions towards these major issues. But Queensland's Human Rights Commissioner Scott McDougall is warning the proposed laws won't improve safety, telling Tuesday's hearing in Brisbane that there was no justification to override the Human Rights Act. cannot be described as comparable to a war, a state of emergency. It does not need to make an override declaration in order to enact these laws. Today, the Queensland government also announced $25 million for a new police operation targeting youth crime. State MP Rob Catter doesn't see any of it making a difference. 
you know, you can't have police on every corner every second. So you're really just putting a Band-Aid over a bullet wound, you know. He agrees with experts that detention in itself isn't a deterrent for young offenders. To, you know, to present that as a solution to the public, I think it's pretty ignorant and naive at best. But I think, you know, at worst, it's really just a political sell to get them through the media cycle. Emeritus Professor Ross Hommel thinks the government will push ahead with its reforms despite the long-term consequences. Look, I actually think the um, government's painted themselves into a corner. If you wanted to widen the gap with a with a huge wedge, uh, you couldn't go about it more effectively than we're doing at the moment in Queensland. So you've got to understand what's happening. It's not about solving the problem. It's about theatre. It's about performance. It's a pantomime for an audience. And I think that's disrespectful to the audience. But the really more important point is that um, it's not going to make the communities safer. It's not going to make Toowoomba or Townsville or Mount Isa or, or anywhere else any safer. It's better to divert children as soon as possible from the youth justice system. That's what I'm trying to say. You know, and there's any amount of um, ways we could uh, invest uh, all the money we're building, uh, we're spending on building new detention centres, we could reinvest that, so talking about justice reinvestment, into treatment programs that actually deal with the consequences of emotional, physical and sexual abuse. And we're beginning to learn how to do that. And there's a growing evidence base of what works. In a statement, the Queensland Minister for Children and Youth Justice, Leanne Linard, says the government will also invest more than $100 million into programs proven to make a difference including intensive case management and early intervention. Gavin Cooch reporting. The New South Wales government has appointed a chief advisor to improve student behaviour in schools. Psychologists hope it means a more holistic approach to children's wellbeing in the classroom, but the teachers' union warns expanding the bureaucracy won't fix a critical shortage of teachers and school counsellors. Here's Rachel Hayter. The woman tasked with improving the behaviour of New South Wales school children has named the biggest factor in challenging student conduct. Their ability to regulate their emotions. Emeritus Professor Donna Cross is the state's new chief behaviour advisor. When they're feeling angry, how to pull that in. When they're feeling upset, what kinds of steps they can take individually to regulate that. But also I think adults around them haven't had the opportunity to to learn the sorts of actions that they could take as well. She's been called in to the new role for a two-year tenure to support teachers and boost learning outcomes. There are some really wonderful pieces of emerging evidence that often takes a while to get to schools, get to practitioners, because schools are such busy places and teachers are so busy doing what they're doing that they don't get the opportunity to, to take on this research and see how it could influence their practice. And similarly, parents don't get the chance to see this evidence uh, as easily as, as perhaps we should be allowing them to. President of the New South Wales Teachers Federation, Angelo Gavrilatos, is sceptical of the appointment. What we need in New South Wales is teachers and school counsellors. He says fixing staff shortages should be the priority. The teacher shortage, the school counsellor shortage, is impacting kids every single day. Their needs aren't being met. What we don't need is further headline-grabbing announcements and adding to a bloated, top-heavy bureaucracy. Elisa Stevens is a Federation representative in the New South Wales Southern Highlands with two decades of classroom experience. Relationships are the number one, the number one key and teachers at the moment just don't have time to build those relationships and to repair, repair after, after things go badly because the workload is just so crushing. 
Author and parenting expert Dr Justin Coulson agrees the quality of students' relationships determines their behaviours. Children behave in challenging ways, usually because their relationships stink or because they're struggling to feel competent at school. And coming up with better behaviour management strategies fails to address that core issue. He says kids flourish when they're allowed autonomy. This fundamental basic psychological need is trampled all over on a day-to-day basis by schools. And when we start talking about behaviour management, what we really are talking about is more controlling interventions which make kids feel incompetent, damage their relationships and make them feel like they have zero control over their lives. These things do not address student behaviour. They actually magnify student behaviour challenges. And the way parents meet their children's psychological needs at home informs their interactions in the classroom. Make sure that kids feel like they have a place to belong, their relationships are strong, that kids feel like they have a sense of autonomy and control over their own lives in a collaborative way with their parents, that their lives feel purposeful and that they've got a sense of mastery and capability. Like kids feel like they can actually do stuff and be agents in their own lives. If parents can do that, then the kids are going to grow up resilient, well-rounded. They'll have high levels of well-being and they'll step into a school environment and function reasonably well, even if the school environment doesn't. Clinical psychologist Dr Charlotte Keating says learning from home during the pandemic changed the way students show up in the classroom. It has had an impact on their capacity to learn and progress academically for some. For others, it might have been that they have experienced social isolation or a sense of difficulty with connecting with friends over that period. Professor Cross will start her new role at the end of the month. Rachel Hayter reporting. To the top end now and residents of three flooded remote Northern Territory communities are asking why government authorities didn't start evacuations to Darwin until water was up to their roofs. But they've had some wins though, including saving Indigenous cultural artefacts that had just been returned to them. Jane Barden has more. The rise of the Victoria River and its creeks in the NT's west came rapidly and without warning for residents of the Dagaragu Indigenous community. Penny Smith manages the Kalankari Art and Cultural Centre in the neighbouring community of Kalkaringi, where people were initially brought. We had people who were on roofs over in Dagaragu and had to be helicoptered over after a few days of being cut off from food and pretty well communication and power and also the little community of Pigeonhole they ended up sitting on a little hill nearby to keep out of the water and they had to be helicoptered down a few at a time. As Kalkaringi started to flood she had to quickly save Indigenous artefacts from the art centre. So we had this beautiful collection of boomerang and coolerman and spears that came from our family of a gentleman that used to come out here as a hawker. What's the situation for the art centre now? It's still about a metre deep. All the furniture has floated. The NT government is now evacuating more than 740 residents from the communities by plane after many spent the night in the local school. Some are asking why they didn't get an earlier warning from the Weather Bureau or the NT government. 
We had some warning, but particularly the situation in Bagaragu. That was very dire. The Victoria Daily Mayor, Brian Pedwell, is angry about what he sees as long inaction by the NT government to upgrade early warning systems across the Territory. That's particularly after a similar situation at Timber Creek at Christmas. What annoys me is that from Timber Creek, lessons from that wasn't learnt. We've been lobbying close to a decade now for river height gauges, markers, not only for our region, so we can better prepare. We're just hearing these excuses, you know. The Weather Bureau and NT Police Controller Danny Bacon have acknowledged there isn't enough early warning infrastructure. Um, the sudden rise within Kalkaringi, were, the rain was in um, areas that weren't recorded. The Kalkaringi store is handing out food packs to residents. The head of the Arnhem Land Progress Association, which manages it, and several others across the NT, Alistair King, is accusing the NT government of not responding to his warnings. Many cut-off communities are running out of food. What we're being told is the Emergency Operations Centre can't assist until the Northern Territory Government declare an emergency. And uh, it's our opinion that the emergency was declared far too late and everybody out of the blue was standing on roofs waiting to be evacuated. NT Chief Minister Natasha Files. We don't want to unnecessarily evacuate people, but at the same time, we want to make sure that we can get them out as early as possible. But it's the weather and it's, you know, at times can be difficult to predict. The Federal Emergency Management Minister Murray Watt says three Defence Force planes are being provided to help the NT government with evacuations. Evacuees arriving in Darwin are being accommodated in sports and showground halls. Many, like Nicholas Lingyari, have lost everything. Bridges, TVs back over there, most of the clothes. It made me worried about my kids as well. Pretty scary out there too. She's still waiting to get out, but art centre manager Penny Smith is already worried what the community will find when they can return. The sewage septic system is totally underwater and there's questions about how long will this take and what do we do when we're in Darwin, that sort of thing. Penny Smith from the Callan Carney Art and Culture Centre. Jane Barden reporting. Western governments are being warned they're losing the race with China for technological supremacy. The Australian Strategic Policy Institute's Critical Tech Tracker looks at research and development across future technologies, including robotics, artificial intelligence and biotechnology. And it's found Chinese institutions are taking the lead in almost all the key fields. That means China is in a prime position to dominate those technologies in the future, and that could have big consequences for the balance of power. Here's our foreign affairs reporter, Stephen Jedgetts. Last year, China sent shockwaves through US intelligence agencies when it flew a hypersonic missile around the world. US officials tonight closely monitoring China's missile program following a report of a possibly ominous missile test. The test was a reminder of China's increasing military power, but that strength rests on a bedrock of advanced research. Now, the Australian Strategic Policy Institute has conducted an ambitious new piece of research which tries to work out which nations are dominating fields like artificial intelligence, robotics, biotechnology, advanced manufacturing and quantum technology. Dr Jamie Gader from the Institute 
says the main finding is stark. What it shows us is that there's a really striking lead in the majority of these technologies where China is well out ahead of everybody else. Beijing leads in 37 of the 44 fields which Aspie tracked. In some fields, it's producing more than 60% of the top research papers and hosts a clear majority of the top institutions. Dr Gader says that means Beijing's in a prime position to dominate the fields which are likely to propel innovation and economic growth, as well as determine advanced military capability in the coming decades. Current research doesn't directly translate to current defence capability, current manufacturing capability. But surely if you wanted to put yourself in the best position to be able to be in the lead in, say, five years' time, well, of course you want to be at the forefront of breakthrough research. The United States is the only country remotely close to China. It leads in the remaining seven fields and is almost always second to China across the rest. The Biden administration last year plunged 300 billion through the CHIPS Act to revive semiconductor chip manufacturing in the US. And just last week, the Commerce Secretary, Gina Raimondo, said investing in research and development and high-tech manufacturing was a national security priority. But the reality is the manufacturing atrophy in the semiconductor industry has real consequences. For starters, it's a threat to our national security. Almost all of our sophisticated defense capabilities, satellites, drones, hypersonic weapons, You can't do any of that without chips. Meanwhile, a second tier of nations, including the United Kingdom, India and Germany, do retain specialist research. But the Aspie tracker finds they're well behind the two great powers. And the paper says in some technological areas, Beijing's lead is stunning. Dr Gaida once again. China is publishing approximately 65% of the world's top 10% research within a technology area. I just can't find any other way, you know, any other language to use other than to say, you know, it's it's striking. It's really profound. He says Beijing's worked long and hard to build this lead and the onus is now on Western democracies to plunge more money into research and development to catch up. In the report, we, we say now is the time to move. We don't shy away from the fact that this will be expensive. This requires very significant step up in our research and development capability. And inaction carries costs as well. The ABC's foreign affairs reporter, Stephen Jedgetts. Thanks for joining me for PM. I'm Samantha Donovan. You can find all our interviews and reports on the PM webpage. We'll be back at the same time tomorrow. Good night. I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily podcast. Super was set up to be your ticket to a comfortable retirement, but over the years, the richest Australians have done a lot better out of it than everyone else. Today, ABC 730's chief political correspondent, Laura Tingle, on the government's surprise move to target the wealthy with a tax hike. Look for the ABC News Daily Podcast on the ABC Listen app. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.